title of tonight's message is Radical Assault. Or if you want to pronounce it as it's spelled, Radical as Salt. <laughs> radical Assault. The word, the word tonight I got with wrestling with the word, and um, I came to a spot. It started in Matthew 5.13. Before I start, I, I was familiar with all of the, the ideas about this verse. I had probably heard it preached several different ways. I was uh, aware of the idea that, that uh, maybe Jesus is saying that we are to be a preservative or, or we're some sort of an a, a agent of flavor on the earth mixed into the world. Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It also parallels in Mark 9.50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Luke 14 also says the same. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a pretty serious subject because the implications are that if you lose whatever Jesus is talking about here, how can it be made possible to return to that? If you lose it, what is the outcome? Better not lose it. I thought, as I wrestled with this, I I just tried to imagine, is Jesus possibly talking about that maybe we're to be just a bit of flavor? Or maybe something as simple as as a preservative on the earth? I'm not, I don't think so. Let's start, if you will, we're going to go through this. We're going to go through this from the beginning, and I'll show you where, how I got to this. Genesis 1.28 is where we'll start. Are there when you're there? Genesis 1.28 the first command that God gave to man. The first commandment. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Yes. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And if you jump down to 2.15, it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work the ground and take care of it. This is before the fall of man. This is before sin entered into mankind. But God yet put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it. We joked, made a joke um, Sunday night about what if, what if God put John Calvin in the garden. And it's pretty funny. You think nothing would have gotten done, right? <laughs> he would have just told God, God, you've already taken care of it. Your sovereignty is over it all. But what's funny is... In our week, it, it just day to day, from Sunday to Wednesday, when we're faced with opportunities, when we're faced with situations, how many times do we develop just thoughts and theologies in our mind that are not scriptural whatsoever? Things like, God will give another opportunity. Oh, I missed that one, but, but you know, maybe God wasn't reaching out to that person. How many of you have said things like that? Made that excuse. Maybe, God, maybe it's not their time. Maybe God's... 
uh, got a different, another person to come plant that seed. You know, uh, what does it say? Paul planted seed, Apollos watered. Maybe somebody else is going to, maybe that's somebody else's job. But you know, how many, how many of us, if we were the ones God placed in the garden with no other pastors, no other leaders over us, no other people to look at us, no accountability, how, how many of us would work in that garden? Just us and God. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? If we were the ones placed with no accountability, how many of us would be diligent and working? And yet, this is the first command. This is the first command. A little side note. Lord gave me this today. Sometimes we come to church. Wednesday, we feel like we've been dried up. feel like we're, we're spiritually dead. feel like we need to be fed. You know what the Lord told me today? If you would work more, I would feed you more. <laughs> Those that work the, more, the most, the Lord feeds. It's just the way it is. Those of you in your midst that you see God, that, that you see blessed, that, that have a, a better handle on the Word, that have uh, more blessing and, and maybe God bringing things into their life, it's probably because they're working for it. It's probably because they're hungering for it a little bit more. If you've ever, run, if you've ever managed, you don't give employees more than what, they're, than what they need. You just don't do it. You don't give the workers more food when they're not working as hard as the other guys, you don't give those guys as much food. You just don't. Because you, you, you need to give it to the guys that work the most. Just a little side note. Think about that. We're called to work. We're not called to sit by idly. We are, not called, we are called to be in action all of the time. Totally striving for the kingdom of God with everything that we have. Not holding anything for ourselves. That's the thing. We have, there's, there's a thing called cat and dog theology. I don't know if you've heard about it. Cat and dog theology. The difference between a cat and a dog. The cat is served by a man, by, by its master. And the cat thinks to itself, well, I must be God. <laughs> the dog is served by its master and thinks, well, he must be God. God put man in the garden for whom? Him, not for man. God did not put Adam in the garden for Adam's sake, but for his sake. It is for him and him alone. We are put here for his glory, not our glory. There, I'll get into this later. We're put here for Him and Him alone. Nothing else. And we are not here. The, most of us aren't getting fed because we come with the attitude of me, 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 my problem first. And yet God is calling us to His kingdom to work, to bring His kingdom on earth. Turn with, you, turn with me to Deuteronomy 7 as we continue. God's called us to work. Be busy. Deuteronomy 7. Verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drive and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, making no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, Burn their idols in the fire, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth.
to be his people, his treasure possession. God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He brought them, delivered them, brought them all under the cloud, all under the water. And he called them to go into the land and possess it, to fight. He even told them uh, in Joshua 23, 9 through 13, The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations to this day. No one has been able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as He promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God gave you. It is clear that the Lord told them to drive out every single one of them. He told, this reminds me of when the Lord told Saul to kill every single one of the Amalekites. Every single, don't leave a single one. And he told them if you did not, they would become snares and traps for you. If you did not dispossess every single one of them, they will become snares and traps. The, the standard here was not for the Israelites to go and make peace with the other nations, not to go and intermingle with them, because the Lord had called Israel to be a very distinct and different people from all of the others. God was calling them not to settle. He was calling them to make war. He was calling them to, to go out and completely rid the earth of them. And yet, I see two things in this. Yet, in our, in our spiritual life, God calls us to do this, and out in the world. In our spiritual lives, God called us to rid us of every single idol that, that comes upon us, every single thing of the world that tries to keep in, every single sin that so easily entangles we're supposed to throw off of our feet. Amen. And when we go out into the world, we're not supposed to be at peace with the world. We are not supposed to be at ease with this world. We are not supposed to just make friends, you see. We are supposed to dispossess the spiritual forces of darkness. Yes. We're supposed to go out and make a noise yes. for the Lord. Go out and take a stand for the Lord. Yes. The, God called Israel God called Israel to be a very distinct people group. He gave them specific commandments so that they will not look like the rest of the world. Deuteronomy 4, 5-7. See, I have taught you degree, decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. God, God called Israel to a very specific set of commandments. And the reason why is because He wanted them to be distinct. He wanted them to be set apart from every other nation. Do you realize that every other nation, they worshipped idols made of, of what? Gold, probably calves, probably different animals. What did God give Israel, uh, resent, what did he give them symbols of? Different things that no other nation had. An ark, a menorah, a, a, a lamp, it was a lampstand, an altar. 
All of these things that symbolized very specific things of God's presence. And it was, it was supposed to cause the other nations, supposed to cause them to look at Israel and say, what is so different about them? What is so different about these people and their God? Can you imagine what it must have been like for the, for the, the priest in the temple of Dagon in the, Philistine, in the Philistine camp whenever the ark caused that thing to fall over? The presence of God caused the, the statue to fall over? It's the presence of God. The presence of God that separates us and makes us distinct from the world. Amen. We are called to be distinct. And Israel, when they lost that distinction, when they begin to be tired of that distinction and run after idols of the world is when they, whenever they begin to lose their edge. They begin to lose their identity as a nation. They begin to lose their purpose. You could say they begin to lose their saltiness. When they begin to tire of that distinction, when they, when they no longer wanted to be God's people, God's holy treasured possession, when they got tired of it and lusted after things of the world, it's when God brought ruin. It's when God re reduced them Remove them. King Solomon. King Solomon was the wisest man in all the earth. And yet even then, his heart was not kept safe in his wisdom. It says in 1 Kings 11, 1-4, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. See, that's the same command. You must not mix with them because they will t surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. His wives led him astray. Did it stop there at Solomon? No. Did it? No. It did not. It went on to Jeroboam, Rehoboam. It went, it went on and on and on until there is a list of kings who did the sins and they're, and they're labeled for it doing the sins as so-and-so committed. It did not stop with Solomon. What are the implications of our obedience? I just want to remind, remind us of that. What are the implications of our obedience to God, of our keeping our distinction from the world? What are the implications of that? What are the implications of us when we go out through the day and maybe, you know, give us the benefit of the doubt, maybe we're just tired. You know what? Maybe we're tired for taking a stand for Christ. What are the implications of that? While the world goes to hell in a handbasket, what are the implications of us losing our distinction from the world? What are the implications? It's too much at risk to sit and say things that the Bible never says about evangelism. Well, I'll just wait and stand by. Maybe their heart can't be reached yet. When you know all the well God is calling you to speak truth Amen. in their life. Amen. You know the truth is to tell them what Jesus said about them. We, we live in a culture where... I, turn in to the, turn, tune in to the Christian radio and find out what, what the message of this American culture is. I, you hear it as the day is long. Messages about us, me, we. All it is is all, all of the songs, all of the preaching. It's about God's always there. He'll never leave us. God loves us no matter what. God will fix our problems no matter what. And we are ingrained in it. And we live amongst a people who are ingrained in it. 
It's easy to go to other countries and preach the gospel. It's easy to go to prison and preach the gospel because they know they are without a Savior. It's easy to tell. But the people that are beside you and I at work that need to hear the gospel, that think they're already saved and they're not, those are the people that we need to be distinct. Those are the people that are worth ridding our, ourselves of idols for. Yes, our idols will cause us to be shallow in our evangelism. Our idols will cause us to cower and to crumble when God says to stand up. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes. Psalm 5, 4-7 through 7 talks clearly about how God feels about wicked men. How many of you heard before, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner? I hope tonight to smash every single bit of philosophy or whatever you call it that has been created in evangelism's name because it, are not, it is not true. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. What if the sinner loves the sin? What if the sinner loves what they are doing? Psalm 5, 4 through 7. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful, Lord, you, Lord, detest. But he goes on to say, but I, by your great love, can come into your house. In Psalm 31, 6, God says, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. There's those idols again. As for me, I trust in the Lord. How, is, how does God feel with sinners? He said in Genesis, He said, I, I am going to destroy the world because my heart is grieved that I had made man. God's heart is grieved at what He sees in the heart of man. And this world, this, this American Christianity, thinks themselves to be already reconciled with God. We are, you and I, we are here in a country that is one of the hardest countries to evangelize because they know enough Scripture to think themselves saved. That's right. They know enough Scripture to justify themselves all the time. And God is calling us to speak out. How can we sit by? How can we sit by and fail to be the salt? How can we sit by and not say anything? How can we not speak up? Usually, it's not, usually we know the truth we ought to do. And we don't do it. The Reason is, is because something else is stealing that from us. There's something else stealing our devotion. Those idols. Those things we let into our life that steal our devotion. Steal our devotion from Christ. And we, we're, we're, we're continually devoted to the thing. We're, we are, are giving all of our energy to it. And when the opportunity comes, we miss it. Because we, hadn't been, we haven't been praying for it. We haven't been hungering for it. Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law day and night. There's that distinction again. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Blessed are the ones that don't just sit there in the company of mockers. Don't just sit there. How easy, how easy is, is it to sit there when people around you are speaking blasphemies? 
or speaking things that God hates, how easy is it to sit there, not say a thing? When you sit there, you contribute to their sin. You allow it to, you allow it to go on because you, you know the truth. You have been blessed with the truth and you are not combating it. Proverbs 24, 1-2 Do not envy the wicked, nor desire their company. Hmm. Do you desire the company of the wicked? For their hearts plot violence, and their lips talk about making trouble. Who do you feel comfortable with? Who do you feel comfortable with, and who feels comfortable with you? Are people that are in sin feel comfortable around you? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Have you ever had that feeling? When you come to church, you know you're in sin, and you see a brother or sister who is doing well in the Lord and you get convicted at their presence? Do people feel that around you? Do people, do, have you devoted yourself to being fruitful to such an extent that you, you have taken every opportunity that sinners are uncomfortable around us? Or do they even know? Do they even know what you stand for? That's a good word, brother. I'm going to share three scriptures out of the New Testament that, that tied directly with salt. Three scriptures that tied directly. First one in, in, in Mark 9, 43 to 47. Say there when you're there. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Sin is a serious, serious subject in God's eyes. God hates sin so much He can't tolerate a sin. He cannot tolerate a single sin. You know, we, like, we all love to talk about the love of God. You hear it on the radio, they love to talk about the love of God, the faithfulness of God. He never fails. His presence is like a sweet river. But you never hear them talk about the justice of God. Never hear them talk about the wrath of God. Never hear them talk about the glory of God and the destruction of sin. Never hear them talk about that. And yet God, God is so holy, He cannot tolerate a sin. Not one. How many sins did Adam commit before he was kicked out of the garden? How many sins did Saul commit? Probably a lot. But how, what was, how many sins nailed it for Saul for him to be removed from the kingship of Israel? Right. One sin. God hates sin. And we, God hates sin. We're around a people that drink it up like water. Right. God hates it. And in your life too, remember when we talked about salt, it's no mystery what the salt of the earth is. You're the salt of the earth. Jesus said that every, all three scriptures. But if it loses its saltiness, that's the key. If it loses it, you, us, me, if I continue on and continue on and continue on, I may prophesy a good, a good message. I may, I may speak a good word. I may cast out demons. But Jesus said, if I, am a pra- if I practice lawlessness and stand before Him, He'll say, I never knew you. That's right. if, we, if we continue in sin, the good that we know we ought to do and don't do it, we'll be thrown into hellfire. It's Holy Spirit fire or it's hellfire. 
if we want to minister, if we want to be the salt of the earth, we cannot have idols. We cannot hold on to the thing that God says to put down. We cannot do it. We cannot be effective ministers for the Lord and still have something that we know that we're doing that the Lord is not pleased with. Or something that we know we ought to do and have not done it. We cannot be in disobedience and strive to be salt. It can't, it's not possible. That's the definition of salt. Luke 14, 26. Another scripture that ties directly with salt. Hmm. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet e yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. The gospel, being salt, requires you to continually, time after time after time again, choose between something that you, another path you can go down or obedience to Christ. You will go through many trials and many temptations and many things will try to grab your attention and you will, be, you will be in a forked road many times of your life. And you know what? That road gets narrower and narrower and narrower as you go on. Jesus Christ, in obedience to Him, commands you to lay down more and more and more as you follow Him. How many times is it so easy to sit and look back and say, I've given up this this, this, and this, and sit in a pity party and say, you know what, this is too hard. This is too hard. There was a, there was a preacher that said, Christianity has not been tried and found, found false. It's been tried and found hard. It gets harder and harder, and the commitment gets higher and higher. As Jesus, as you walk with Jesus, He goes further and further. His disciples, He looked... He, he, they followed Him for a, for a couple years, and He looked back and said, how many of you will leave me. He told them something that sounded so perverse to them that caused everyone to fall, almost, almost everyone around him to fall away. And he looked at his disciples and said, will you leave me too? The commitment gets higher and higher. I'm reminded of Peter. Peter, after he had denied Christ and Jesus resurrected, Jesus showed himself to his disciples, his disciples. And in John, he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says it three times. Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. He said, surely, when you were smaller, you did what you wanted. You, you went where you wanted to go. But when you're older, you will, go where you, you will be led by men, and you will not go where you want to go. And you know what Peter did? He looked at John, he said, what about him, Lord? And you know what Jesus told Peter? What is it to you if I want him alive? If I want to keep him alive, what is it to you? What is it to you if Jesus requires you to die? What is it to you if Jesus requires you the hardest and most difficult road? Do we sit back and look at that and, and shrink and say, no, Lord, not me? No. Do, we, do we look at Jesus and say, that's not worth it? And then we go feed ourselves with some lust that, that satisfies for the moment? No. Hebrews 6, it says, or Hebrews 10, it says, we are not those that shrink back and are destroyed. That's right. 
we continue on. We persevere in following Amen. Jesus. Amen. If you want to be salt, it requires you to follow Him daily, every day. It means the opportunities to die every day. It means you take them. Amen. You embrace them with a smile. Amen. You embrace them with, just like Jesus embraced them with the joy that's set before you. Knowing that you are being made into His image. You are being made into more and more of a son of the Father. You are being credited with righteousness by taking those, those moments. To be salt means to say, Lord, give me more. Give me more opportunities to die. As hard as they may be, as many people will, will ridicule, God, give me more. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what the world does. If they rip my flesh from my body, Lord, it's worth it. Because I want to follow after you. Amen. Matthew 5, 11-12. Another scripture that ties directly with salt. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's going to take some persecution. Paul said in, in Acts, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. That's right. People are going to hate us. People are going to hate you if you want to follow Jesus. You say, well, how can that be? We read in Psalm, Psalm 5 that God is a God who, who's not pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. You want to know why God hates the wicked? Because they hate Him. They hate Him. How many times can you look through the Gospel and find somewhere in the... In the Newer Testament, Older Testament, things that show God's men's hatred towards God. Yes. In Romans 2, it says they became God-haters. Or Romans 1, rather. They became God-haters. Romans 8, the sinful mind is hostile to God. We are called to that place, th that world, those people who hate God because His standard reveals their wickedness. We are called to those people and they will persecute. When you go before them, you could say the name Jesus. And they will look at you and say, why, the heck, why are you saying that? What, what business do you have? Whoa, why are you judging me? Jesus said in John 3, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. But the world is condemned already. That is why they will hate you, because they hate him already. They are condemned already. They don't have to do anything to be condemned. They're condemned. God's calling us to them. He said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. That doesn't sound like a very good plan, does it? Doesn't sound like a doesn't sound very strategic. But that's the way God chooses to display his gospel. He sent his glorious son to come down in flesh, in weak flesh, and have it be, be ripped by men. He gave his son flesh so that it could be ripped. And he calls us to do the same in his image. Paul said, I desire to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. To show them the glory. That shows the world what's worth following when we suffer. And we hide away from it. We shy away from it. Because, once again, I believe it's rooted in idolatry. We would rather submit to some idol somewhere. We would rather be lazy or... or or 
keep holding on to something over here. I'll give you a testimony of mine, how this word so rocked my heart. It didn't seem like a huge sin. But there, somehow one day, striving for the Lord, I stumbled upon a video game. You know, one of those little video games you play on your phone. Check this out, youth group. Stumbled upon a video game, right? I'm just checking it out. Wasn't a big sin. Wasn't a huge deal. I was involved in this ministry, that ministry, preaching in youth group, leading worship here and there. Lord was, Lord's blessing it. Going out on the streets, evangelizing, whatever. And so I began to do this, began to just play it just a little bit. And before you know it, all of my attention is toward this. All of it. Not willingly. But I would find myself desiring it, that one thing that, you know, can't wait to get a little bit of free time so I can go over here and do this, that. And before you know it, my joy was being robbed from me. My joy in doing the will of God. I was missing opportunities in evangelism. Missing opportunities to speak a word there because of some idol. What it is is God removes himself. When God senses that there is an idol present, he removes himself. He will not go up. When Achan sinned, Joshua had to separate the camp by family, by clan, by by tribe, by family, clan. He had to separate it because God would not go. They were losing battles. Battles they should have won, they were losing because of idols, sin. And then I came upon this word, these three scriptures that I just gave you in the Newer Testament that tied directly to salt, and I came to them, and I read... You are the salt of the earth if salt loses its saltiness. And I found those three scriptures, and they tied directly to the salt. You want to know how? Anybody catch it? They're the scriptures that come right before where Jesus says you are the salt. It's almost as if mid-sentence, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. You're the salt of the earth. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, Mother, wife, and children, and brothers, yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. You're the salt of the earth. And rejoice and be glad, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you're the salt of the earth. What does it mean to be salt? It means to be totally distinct from the world. It means to be totally radical and totally bold for the gospel. It means to be what salt is. Salt dominates everything you put it on dominates everything you put it on. Totally distinct from anything. You take something has no, it yeah. is bland and tasteless, you put salt on it, and it's tasteful. Yeah. You, can scent, you can feel that. Salt is totally distinct. And God calls, calls us to be that. And then I found, you know, in Luke 14, Luke 14, 34 through 35, says salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It is neither fit. It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. I said, what does that mean? Not fit for the manure pile. Wrestled. I wrestled with it. And prompted by a brother, he, he, 
He demonstrated it and showed me what that meant. But I would not believe it until I searched it out. I began to look and look and read the scripture I found in 1 Kings 14.10. 1 Kings 14.10. Put it on the screen. Begin to search every dictionary I found, every commentary. It says, because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. And I looked that up. I found that in ancient times, they would use dung as fuel. Not, not the best cooking method, but they would use dung as fuel, probably because it was cheap, readily available. They would mix the dung with straw. And then they would put salt on it. Because salt then was not like salt we have now. Salt, salt now has been refined by man and not the, same it, not the same as it used to be. I don't think that's the salt God's talking about. Salt then had a high content of magnesium from the area that it, that, that it came from. And it could lose its saltiness. See, the salt you have now in your kitchen won't lose its saltiness. You can keep it forever. And it'll stay that way. But salt then could lose its saltiness because it wasn't as pure. If you left it in the sun long enough, or if it was used frequently, it would, quote, lose its saltiness. And it was no longer good. And what they would do is they would salt the dung mixed with straw. They would salt the dung, and that salt caused the dung to burn hotter and hotter and hotter until it was all burned up. Wow. It, caused, it was the agent that caused the fire to burn yes. hotter. Yes. You are the agent that God uses. You're supposed to be the agent. You ought to be the agent that God uses to increase revival fire on the earth. Yes. Holy Spirit fire. But if we lose our saltiness, how can we, how can, what good are we? We're no longer good for the manure pot. We're no longer good for that. It reminds me of um, the parable of the sower. Seed that fell on, on rocky soil. Burned up, eaten away didn't take root. Look at, our, look at your life. Are we in danger of losing our saltiness? And what I mean by, look at your evangelism. Your impact on the world. Are you remaining distinct from the world? Or do you have idols that are causing you to become dull? Causing you to become tasteless? Are you remaining distinct? Are you remaining dominant? Are other people persecuting you? In your workplace, in your workplace, do people talk about you? There's that, there's that holy roller again. I, got, I am convicted. You know what convicts me? There are people, and I'm going to be real now, because it convicts me. There are people in this church who have just been born again, not, maybe not born again, but just been filled with the Spirit maybe a month ago and are radically impacting their workplace for the gospel. Amen. Radically turning up their workplace for Jesus. Amen. And then there are some of us who have been here for years, and there's no fruit. That convicts me as I'll get out. That convicts me. Do you remember that when you were filled with the Spirit? When you were first filled with the power of God? When you were first born again, you were so in love with Jesus. You were so full of the Holy Spirit. You were so desiring to be more obedient in Jesus. Do you remember that time when you were making an impact on the world? What happened? What happened? Did we become lazy? Did we let an idol come in? Did we make an excuse? Well, I just can't. My, 
my, my workplace. You know, I, I work too much. And then you ask, hey, man, what's going on? Well, my work is my, my ministry. Really? <laughs> How many people have you brought from work to church? How many people at work have you prayed for? Are we making an impact? That's a good word, brother. How can we keep from losing our saltiness? If we want to remain the dominant force around us, how can we keep from losing it? John 15, 5 through 10. Says it all. John 15, 5 through 10. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Let's stop right there. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Much fruit. Be fruitful and multiply, God said. Much fruit will you bear. What is the fruit of your life? Are you bearing fruit to such an extent that other people are coming to enjoy your fruit? Other people. See, fruit can be enjoyed by all. It can be enjoyed by people. It's enjoyed by God. Fruit is for God to look at and say, I'm pleased with that. I am pleased with the fruit. Therefore, so Jesus doesn't have to come and say, curse you. May you never bear fruit again. Fruit is good for God and good for people so that people can come and enjoy the fruit that you've produced. What fruit are we producing And if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, if my words remain in you, Jesus' word remaining in you. That means that we have to be in the word. We have to be filling ourselves with the word. That's that hunger again. If you're working, you're working for the gospel. If you are striving hard and working, you need to be fed more. I find that those who work more go to the Word more because they need to be fed more. They need to be fed. They need their source to come because they've already poured out. And those that do not work, they don't need to be fed. They're satisfied with nothing. They're satisfied with staying where they're at. My words remain in you. What would happen if if Jesus' Word remained in us? Well, that would probably cause an outcry. What happened to Jesus? Said he was the, he was the Word that became flesh. What happened to him? They crucified him. If Jesus's words remain in us, what would they do to us? Would they be comfortable around us? If my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Say, remain in my love. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. How do you remain in Jesus? If you go through this, remain in my love. But how do you do that? You remain in His commands. Yes. You, are, you, you grow in obedience. 
You grow in obedience. And the inverse is true. If you grow in your obedience, you grow in your love for Him. You obey Him because you love Him, and you don't obey Him because you don't love Him. To, be, to make sure that you are still, that you are continuing to be salt, is that you maintain your love for Jesus, expressing itself by obeying the commands. Expressing itself by being obedient to Jesus. When Jesus, you remain in Jesus when He says, do this, and you do it. When Jesus says, speak up, and you speak up. When Jesus says, stand up, and you stand. And when Jesus says, sit, and you sit. You remain in Jesus when you, when you strive, strive to be obedient. And when you miss the mark, you repent. You stop and repent. If you go down to verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. <laughs> you see the same pattern? pattern? If you remain in Jesus, if you kick out the idols, if you be obedient to His commandments, the world's going to hate you. Because right off the bat, that means you're going to be expressing yourself to the world. You're going to be expressing God to the world. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours too. A servant is not greater than his master. Following, if you follow and you remain in his love, it'll cause persecution. 1 John 2, 3-6 says the same. And by this... We know that we, we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him, and this is ESV, apologize. Whoever says He abides in Him, here's the big word, ought to walk in the same way which He walked. There's that word, Baj. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk. It doesn't mean you will. This isn't a once saved, always saved. If you say you abide in Him, then you, you will. It says you ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? How did He walk? He went straight to the cross. No turning back. He went straight to His death. No turning back. He poured out His life. No turning back. Whoever walks, whoever says He abides in Him ought, ought to walk in the same way which Jesus walked. That ought to show something what it means to remain in Him. 1 John 5, 3-5 For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not bur burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That word there, born, is be begotten in the Greek. Same as begotten, generated. Those who have been generated of God means a continual process. It means in the same way that the Father, birthed, as the Father begat the Son, everyone who is begotten of God overcomes the world. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. We overcome the world. We overcome if you are born of God. And this is the victory that, we ha that has overcome the world, our faith. Amen. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? And that word doesn't just mean believe. It, mean, it believes in trust that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who put all their eggs in the basket of that Jesus is who he says he is. They are the ones that overcome the world. Amen. Let me, are you being perfected in your obedience? It's a warning to me. It's a warning to us. Salt, if it loses its saltiness, it's no good for anything. How are you doing? Are you missing opportunities to be salt? Are you missing opportunities to be so boldly radical for Jesus? Are you missing opportunities when Jesus is, is going this way, you're going that way? Are there things in our lives that are eating our lunch? Are there things that we know that we ought to do and we're not doing them? Search ourselves. It, it, it cannot, listen how clear it gets. In Hebrews 6, land, Hebrews 6, 7 through 12, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. Wow. Land that drinks in the rain. How many times will we come to a Wednesday night service, to a Sunday night service, to a Sunday morning service, and leave here the same? Maybe come to the altar, cry some crocodile tears, and go back to doing the thing that God said not to do. Nothing changes. You know you are born of God when you are overcoming the world. You know that you are remaining in Him when you are walking in the way that He walked. How easy. I don't want to say easy. It's a scary thing to say. How easy is it to sit here and receive the land, like land, drinking of the rain and not produce a crop. That land, a farmer that has a land that doesn't produce a crop, he burns it. He doesn't keep it. That land is cursed. Let us not be guilty of receiving and receiving from God and not doing anything. Not doing anything with it. Not being salt. There, in Hebrews 6, the writer says, you ought to be teachers by now. And I'm not saying that in a specific sense, but he's implying that you ought to be, we ought to be so far along. We ought to be growing in our evangelism. We ought to be stepping up, being bold. We ought to be, be all of us being persecuted. Not the work of the church done by the few, but done by the majority. Yes. We ought to all be carrying upon the sufferings of Christ. It's the reason why the world is the way that it is. Because somewhere it's straight off, the church strayed off course and began to run after idols and they wanted to be like the world, like Israel did. They got tired of being distinct and keeping the commandments. Search our hearts. Search our hearts. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says You're, you are called to be a peculiar people. A peculiar people. Not like the world. James 4, it says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How can, we, how can we become friends of the world and follow after Jesus? It's not possible. It is not possible, possible to be salt and not be committed to following Jesus. God calls us to be salt, not sugar. Yeah. 
He doesn't call us to sweeten the deal with the world. He doesn't call us to be nice. He calls us to be radical. Jesus said the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. He said, he said, in Matthew 10, don't suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We say all the time, well, what if we really lived like Jesus lived? What would we look like? Oh, the world would receive us. Everyone would come to Christ. No way. If that's the truth, what happened? why did they kill Jesus? Amen. We ought to be standing, stepping up in our, in our prayer lives, in growing in the Word, in falling radically in love with Jesus. Falling radically in love with Jesus, causing us to walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. Causing us to strive for persecution. Has your love for Jesus failed? Is your love for Jesus waning? Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. There are so many theologies around you swirling about that are about God loving. God is so loving. He's always there for you. That's not what it says in the Bible. It says that there is a time where God, there, God will remove Himself. It says in Romans 1, He gave them over to a depraved mind. Yes. If we continue on doing in disobedience, what will God leave to us? What will God leave to us? How, is our love for God waning? Ask yourselves that. Ask yourselves. Is your love for God waning? How, and how can you, if you say yes, then, you, then there should be some things. We just went through them. Your obedience should be growing. Your, your knowledge and, and study of the Word should be growing. Your fervency in prayer should be growing. Yes. should be waking up every day looking for a fight for Jesus. Amen. We should be getting before the Father every day to be full of the Holy Spirit. Is your love for Jesus waning, church? Is your love for Jesus waning? Jesus left. <laughs> that, ought to be, that ought to be enough to, to drive us to our knees. Jesus left the glory of God. He left the glory of God. That ought, that ought to be enough to force us to cry out for more of Him. He left the glory of God. He left the place that He has never left before. He said, before Abraham was, I am. I was with the Father from the beginning. He was there. All things, it says in Colossians, were made through Him, by Him, and for Him. And He reduced Himself to flesh for you, for, for me. And Romans 5 talks about when we were yet sinners, He came and died for us. When we were yet in rebellion, Amen. that Jesus, the one who can look at the Father in the face, the one who dwells in, in, in an unapproachable light, who is immortal. Jesus is the only one who could see the Father. And he reduced himself to flesh so that it could be ripped off for your sake. Amen. And we let our love grow cold. That ought to be enough to convict us, drive us to the cross and say, Father, I am sorry for wasting what you've given me. I am sorry for wasting the opportunity. I am sorry. Like in Psalm 51, David said, Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Yes. I am sorry, Lord, that my joy is not in your salvation. I am sorry I haven't hungered and thirsted enough. 
I'm sorry, Lord. I want more. That ought to be our heart's cry. I'm going to wrap up with one scripture. Romans 12, 1. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I urge you, by what? In view of God's mercies. In view of the mercy God has had for you. This is the urge. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Amen. In view of God's mercy, God's great mercy that He's had for us, all that Christ has done for us, all that Christ has done for us, laying down His life, pouring out His blood for the church so that you can be reconciled with Him, suffering something that the Son of Man had no business suffering. He had no business being separated from his father. He is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is righteous. And he was left to be torn apart by sinful men. He has no business being on earth, and he did it for you. He should have never, never been separated from his father, yet it was his father's good will. It was pleasing to him to crush him for our sake. In view of that, Offer your body as a living sacrifice. In view of that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Come before the Father. There may be some of us, there may be some of us in here who are going down that path. I believe it so because this is the word the Lord gave me. I wouldn't be speaking, I, I wouldn't be sharing this if it wasn't, wasn't so. We all, we all go through that same danger. But there may be some of you who are who are growing colder and colder in your love for Christ because you've let something else take that over. You let an idol come in or you've let laziness come in. You haven't been diligent in the Word like you know you should. If that's you, you have the time now to get it right. You have the time now to, to kneel before the Father. You have the time now to go before God and to cry out, Say, God, forgive me. Fall radically in love with Jesus all over again. Fall radically in love with the one that caused you to step out, Amen. caused you to follow after Him, and get full of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost that empowers, that teaches, that counsels us, that gives us the words to speak. The Holy Ghost that, that moves through you to do God's will and to act out obedience. Without it, it just can't be done. A Christian without the Holy Ghost is like a salt without saltiness. It's not salt. Let us get full of the Holy Ghost and let us grow in our obedience. Let us not ask for more and more of God and yet not grow in obedience because God will not give us more unless we grow. Salty dogs or sugary substitutes? As our brother was preaching, I remembered this passage. Though seeing, 
they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. How do you lose saltiness? How does your pure devotion to Christ become a sugary substitute, a cancer-causing agent in the church? Most Bibles don't put it as a footnote. Most cross-references can't find it. But Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 135. Psalm 135 verse 15 says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. When we accept a love alongside our God, when we tolerate the presence of an idol in the house of God, we become as hard and as calloused as the idol we've accepted. Brother Treaster's helped us to tear the scab off tonight that our hearts would feel again, that our eyes would see again, that our ears would be opened again. I hope you were offended with this message. You should be. I was offended by it. And I hope that offense causes you to examine your heart. 